No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Hello, and welcome to back to another episode of Superman Forever Radio. As always, I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. And uh, this is a, we've got a lot to do this week, got a lot to cover. And since this wasn't a huge news week for Superman, I'm going to cover a couple of quick notes before we jump in. Um, beginning with Metropolis Idol. Thank you all for coming out and voting last week. We are down to the final four, which uh, last one standing were Bud Collier. Clayton Bud Collier, I should be correct, who did the Superman uh, radio show as well as the Fleischer cartoons and the Filmation cartoons in the 60s. And also Gerard Christopher, who uh, was Superboy in the second, third, and fourth seasons of The Adventures of Superboy slash Superboy. Dean Kane, who of course was Superman on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And George Reeves, TV's original Superman from The Adventures of Superman t- television show. So I'm going to ask you again, come back this week to the sidebar at supermanforever.com and vote for uh, two of the, uh, who, who you want to see face off in the final round. And the final round will begin next week. And I'm going to do something different with that. The voting will actually remain open for two weeks since it is going to be just the final showdown, the big dukeroo. And uh, so go to supermanforever.com, vote, your vote counts. And next week uh, I will announce the final two. And uh, hopefully there'll be something special along with that. Another note I want to put in there is uh, the Superman movie collection will be released on Blu-ray, which was rumored for quite a while, but has now been confirmed. It will be released on June 13, 2011. You'll be able to pre-order that on Amazon.com. And it will include uh, the four Christopher Reeve movies as well as Superman Returns. Also, uh, you might want to get over to McDonald's right now. Their Happy Meal toys are featuring Young Justice, which does include a Superman figure and a Superboy figure. Uh, the Superman figure has a power action where his arms uh, fly up and his head tilts back for flying action. Connor's uh, power is he his arm flips up and he lights up. They're pretty cool toys, so McDonald's, Happy Meal, Young Justice. It also includes Kid Flash, Aqualad, Batman, and more. So take a look at McDonald's if you get around. Maybe eating a few cheeseburgers. I did uh, manage to get a hold of my own Superman. I have not tracked down Connor yet. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And finally, the Superman Cele- uh, Celebration Fan Film Competition was announced this week. Um, entries should be between 10 seconds and 15 minutes. And first place in this will be 100, a $300 prize. Second place is $150. And third place is $75. And the entry deadline has been set for May 25th, 2011, with the awards presentation being on Saturday, June 11th, 2011, at the Superman Celebration, which I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I will be going, and we will be doing a special episode of that, which would uh, probably more than likely end up coming out on a Monday, perhaps a Tuesday for editing, just because there'll be so much. And I'll be recording and uploading and editing as I go, but still I want a polished report from that major event. And if you would like to hook up with me while I'm in there, please go to facebook.com, direct message me, put something, uh, comment on on anything there. Let me know that you're going to be there. And if there's enough of you and you're interested, we might do a meetup, but I would need your, your communication. 
As far as the fan film competition, if you want the full details, I'll direct you over to the official website of the celebration at www.supermancelebration.net. And to go directly to the fan film competition, to be supermancelebration.net backslash ff-competition. And I look forward to seeing you all there. And that's kind of all the, the points that I wanted to touch upon before we really begin this episode. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. We're going to look at Metropolis. We're going to wrap up The Last Son of Krypton in our Superman the Animated Series. And we're going to take a good look at Action Comics Annual Number 10, which is going to sort of explain some of the Last Son elements that we've been looking at, as well as set up for some of the future storylines. So I'm going to jump right into that. So I'm going to play this promo. We're going to come back and take a look at the city of Metropolis. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And this week I wanted to delve into some of the surroundings of Superman's universe. In some ways they can be as crucial to the Man of Steel as his supporting cast. So let's talk about the big apricot, Metropolis, also known as the Monarch City. Uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster originally modeled Metropolis off of Toronto and Canada and named it after the Fritz Lang movie Metropolis. Now this is meant to be a fairly inclusive overview, but not an exhaustive resource. And I'm actually using the Essential Superman Encyclopedia by Robert Greenberger and Martin Pascoe, as well as the Ultimate Guide to the Man of Steel by Scott Beatty as sources. So I'd recommend to go, if you want to go more in depth and do your own, uh, do a little bit more, and I would highly recommend both of those books. Now, additionally, certain aspects will come up in future episodes for future further exploration. So if you want to know more about Star Labs, we'll be hitting that later this year in just, I believe, just a few weeks. I'd have to double check that, so don't hold me to that. And to move on to, into this, I think Metropolis is best summed up by a quote from the World of Metropolis number 3 all the way back in 1988. Metropolis is, quote, the best and worst of everything, all crammed into a couple of islands, hardly bigger than Smallville, unquote. Now, the city of Metropolis has been through many interpretations throughout the last 70 plus years. So information is, is of course, in flex. It is a fictional city, and it's, but it's been so fleshed out, it's almost a character in itself. Now, Metropolis is uh, situated on the East Coast with no clear distinction as far as what state or its relation to Gotham City or New York. Now, of course, on the show Smallville, we actually see uh, Metropolis set in Kansas, as known by uh, shown pretty explicitly in an earlier episode this season where Clark books his tickets to Egypt. It does literally say Metropolis, Kansas. But as far as the comics, it's never been stated clearly. It's been thought of to be in Delaware as well as New York. But Metropolis itself, as a, as a body, it primarily sits on an island that's separated from the mainland by the Hobbs River to the north and in an ironically named West River on the south. And Metropolis sits in Sullivan County, and it's primarily broken down into five major boroughs, with New Troy being the biggest and most central in the urban area. And there is also St. Martin's Island, Hell's Gate, Queensland Park, Park Ridge, and Baker Lime. 
And while New Troy is, as I said, the most urban of the five, Park Ridge has the oldest subdivisions, and Baker Line is home to the middle class, the working Joes. And St. Martin's Island is the more affluent, high-class area, uh, along with Hell's Gate, primarily for the oceanfront properties lining the shores of these smaller islands. And Queensland Park is the main focal point for the city's immigration po- immigrant population. And with the city being comprised primarily of one big island and multiple smaller islands, the city has 18 bridges, according to Superman the Man of Steel number 89. These include the Bay Bridge, the Metropolis Burroughs Bridge, and the 49th Street Bridge. So there's plenty of bridges for Superman to rescue school buses from. And some of the notable districts of Metropolis include Suicide Slum, a crime-ridden area of the city littered with tenements and gang activity, such, uh, home to gangs such as the Bade Demons. And of course, Bibbo lives in Suicide Slum, where his bar, the Asa Club, sits. Other slums include Evenside Heights and Olson Gardens, which were named after Terry. De- which was the Olson Gardens? They were named after Terry Dean and Jimmy Olson's reporting skills, exposing Barrett Maxwell as a slumlord. This would have been in Bronze Age continuity, and within. Baker Line was the area known as North Baker Line and the Baker Line Naval Yard. And it should be noted that Jimmy Olsen's mother, Sarah Olsen, resided in this area. Now, the financial district of Metropolis sits on New Troy with the Metro Stock Exchange sitting right on Tall Street. And you can also find Roosevelt Plaza on New Troy, which is the Metropolis equivalent to Rockefeller Plaza in New York. Like most major cities, Metropolis has museums, including the Hall of Heroes and the Metropolis Museum of Art, and it also features the Jules Verne Extraterrestrial Museum. Major structures include the LexCorp Towers, which are glass buildings structured either as a pair or a single letter L, depending on the depiction at the time. And in the heart of the city sits the Daily Planet Building, towering among the skyscrapers with its familiar globe perched atop it. And Lois Lane and Clark Kent reside at 1938 Sullivan Avenue, which is on the edge of the city's Centennial Park, which is very much the uh, analog to Central Park. And inside Centennial Park is where the Superman Memorial resides, which was erected after Superman's death at the hands of Doomsday, and features a bronze statue of the Man of Steel with an eagle perched on his arm. And when Connor Kent was believed dead, or I guess technically was dead, his bronze statue was placed on the location as well. Now, near the city's southern edge is Clark Kent's college alma mater, Metropolis University, which is practically next door to Star Labs, one of the largest privately owned scientific research firms in the country, perhaps the world. On the city's northern shore is Ironworks, formerly known as Steelworks, where John Henry Irons, a.k.a. Steel, carries or carried out his work developing advanced technologies. And in the West River is Strikers Island, home of one of the most high-tech advanced maximum security penitentiaries in the U.S., uh, primarily focusing on metahumans. Now, Metropolis has one of the most extensive commuter train networks in the world, all stemming from Union Station right in the heart of New Troy. Now, if you're a sports fan, you could enjoy two baseball teams that the city boasts, which change a little bit from continuity to continuity, but they seem to be the Metropolis Monarchs and the Metropolis Metros in current continuity. And the Metropolis Meteors are the city's football team, featuring players such as Mark Shepard and Sam Rogers. And the Meteors are also listed as one of these uh, baseball teams as well. And that's one of those continuity things that are are in flux. 
Now, if basketball is your sport, then the Metropolis Generals would be your team, while the Metropolis Mammoths would be field the ice for hockey, and the soccer team is the Metropolis Galaxons. And of course, you can pick up the Daily Planet to read on your sports, but other forms of media include the Planet's competitors, the Metropolis Evening Herald, the Observer, or the National Whisper, if gossip is your thing. Metropolis also boasts the home of Newstime Magazine, a weekly nationally published news magazine that branched out into TV and film production when it merged with the giant corporation Megacom. If you prefer your news on television, there was Lexcom as well as WGBS on Channel 2, the prominent new network in Metropolis, only beaten out by the reach of WLEX. You can always use the public access station at WPUB on Channel 13 if you aren't having luck with YouTube, and WHPS Channel 48 is the city's Spanish-speaking station. On the radio dial, 92.1 Metropolis Hot Radio competes with 94.6, which is all Walt all the time. And WMET sits at 98.7 or 107.3 on the radio dial. And of course, Lex Luthor's WLEX is at 99.5 playing music that's fun. Their words, not mine. And of course, the city has seen bad times. Metropolis was nearly demolished in Action Comics number 700 and received a giant technological update upgrade by in Brainiac in Brainiac Y2K. But the city of tomorrow may take its beatings, but it will always bounce back because the foundations are strong in Sullivan County and also because it's the home to the world's greatest hero, Superman. They know he's on their side. And I want to wrap up this brief look at Metropolis with another quote from Superman number 654. As much as Clark is tied to Smallville, Superman is bound to Metropolis. She adopted and accepted him graciously. Her people rallied around and opened their doors to him. Without her support, the transition from Kansas Country Mouse to Metropolitan City Mouse would have been far more difficult. And for that alone, he would defend her literally to his death. And when this city bleeds, she bleeds red, yellow, and blue. So with that, we'll move on to this week's episode of Superman the Animated Series right after this promo. Rocketed from the doomed planet Krypton, the baby Kal-El was found and raised by the Kents. Now grown, Clark Kent, as Superman, fights for truth and justice. But years later, a rocket holding his 17-year-old cousin, Kara Zor-El, lands on Earth. Now, living in Metropolis, she fights for truth and justice alongside her cousin as Supergirl. Together, they form the Superman family, who fight for truth, justice, and the American way. The Superman Family Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast that covers any and all Superman-related books that fall under the umbrella of the Superman Family, from Power Girl all the way to Crypto the Superdog, as well as all your favorite Superman-related news and much, much more. Join me for some Superman Family fun, only at supermanfamily.com. And this week, we wrap up the origin of Superman, of our animated Superman with Superman the Animated Series, series uh, pardon me, Season 1, Episode 3, which is The Last Son of Krypton, Part 3, which, of course, premiered September 26, 1996, with Part 1 and Part 2, all as one unit. Uh, this was written by Alan Burnett and Paul Dini, directed by Dan Reba and Bruce Timm, with music by Harvey R. Cohen. And, of course, featured the voice talents of Tim Bailey as Superman, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, as well as Malcolm McDowell as John Corbin, Brad Garrett as Bibbo, Mike Farrell as Jonathan Kent, Shelley Fabre as Martha Kent, 
George Zunda as Perry White, David Kaufman as Jimmy Olsen, and Corey Burton as Brainiac. And when we last left the animated universe, Superman has ju had just made his debut trying to rescue the Lexoskeleton from the clutches of thieves. In his aerial pursuit, he took out two of the thieves, but the third fired a missile, clipping off the wing of a passenger plane. This episode opens with the plane in full plummet and Superman in pursuit. Superman tries to slow the plummet by grabbing the tail fin of the plane, but it slips out of his hand and the plane continues to fall toward the buildings of Metropolis. Superman changes tactics and takes on the nose of the plane, helping to guide the craft away from the buildings, but the ground is rushing closer. On the streets below, the crowds begin to panic as Superman manages to lift the plane from the underbelly into a rough landing in Centennial Park, using his feet as brakes, stopping the craft before it hits a mime. With the day saved, Superman flies off, but not before bystanders manage to get a video of the Man of Steel. Back at the Daily Planet in a great transition, Perry watches the video and addresses Clark, Lois, and Jimmy about the new hero. Lois gives Superman his name, proclaiming him to be the Nietzschean ideal, referring back to his namesake, Friedrich Nietzsche. And Perry likes the, the name Superman because it looks great splashed across three to four columns. Back in Smallville, Ma shows Clark the scrapbook she's been keeping of Clark's exploits. Clark ponders the fact that now that he's in Metropolis, it will be harder to keep a low profile, and he's concerned about the fact that so many people want to know everything about him and are also scared of him, and he fears it'll have to give up his own personal life. And Paul assures him that he can still be Clark, with Superman helping out now and then. But Ma says it might be good to tell people a little bit more about himself, so nobody thinks he's like that nut in Gotham City. And there must be some way to get the word out. Oh, of course there is. Back in Metropolis, Lois Lane is on the case, after checking with Star Labs about their new hero. A voice calls out to her as she drives in her car and tells her she is the one he, or pardon me, he is the one she wants to talk to. And Superman lifts the car off the road and into the sky, and takes them to a scenic overlook where he kind of tells Lois that he's the last survivor of Krypton, which she is skeptical about. So Superman simply asks that she tell the truth about him, that he is there to help people and not to scare anyone. And Lois prize tries to pry a little bit deeper about his personal life, which Superman dodges. And Superman's story hits the front page of the Daily Planet, much to the interest of Lex Luthor, who is upset that Superman let the Lexoskeleton get stolen. And Lois and Clark are interviewing the billionaire, who doesn't take kindly to the fact that Clark points out that Lex is, can still make a profit off the war suit due to insurance payouts. One note on this scene, Lex actually pulls on a robe, which is purple with black trim, calling back to his Bronze Age jumpsuit look, which was a nice touch. Now driving back to the Daily Planet, Lois congratulates Clark on being the second person beside her that got under Lex's skin. Uh, basically, Luther wasn't, skilled, wasn't thrilled when Lois dumped him. Now, Lois quickly changes the subject away from her previous love life back to Clark's accusation, and Clark insists that Lex gave the suit away and he's going to prove it. So back at the Daily Planet archives, Clark has dug up pictures of Lex shaking hands with the regent of Kaznia. Clark adds that the regent has been deploying an elite squad of terrorists to deal with his enemies. Due to this, the U.S. has broken diplomatic ties to Kaznia, which would mean that Lex couldn't sell the suit without, without it being a deliberate act of treason. Lois concludes that Luthor left the black door open for the region to take the suit. Meanwhile, at the docks, Bibbo is being kicked off a ship belonging to Kaznia. In this version of the, of the universe, Bibbo actually takes on an interesting look in the animated world because he has a distinct resemblance to Popeye and kind of mutters like him. Voiced by Brad Garrett, who you may remember from Everybody Loves Raymond. 
He's not quite the Bibbo from the comics, but it's not a completely inaccurate version, just a slightly tweaked version. And as he's leaving the ship, Bibbo gets grabbed by fearless girl reporter Lois Lane, who asks about the tanker he was just removed from. Bibbo tells her that the boat has been in port a week and hasn't moved any cargo on or off, and the boat is leaving that night. So Lois knows she has to get on the boat to find the information and proof that she's looking for. She leaves instructions with Bibbo to call Clark at the planet and to call the police if he doesn't hear from her in 20 minutes, which Bibbo does his best to remember, but unfortunately gets distracted by a soda cooler machine and forgets all about it. Now Lois does her best to get on the boat by talking her way on, but the security tells her they are not giving interviews and to go away. However, a nice gentleman enters the conversation and introduces himself as John Corbin who distinctly looks like a the pilot from last episode. I told you it was somebody important. And he tells Lois that, you know, there is no cargo on the ship because of the embargo, and the boat is there to employ some diplomatic relations with the U.S. Unfortunately, as she's wandering around the, the ship, Lois spots the war suit when a door opens momentarily, which prompts Corbin to pull a gun on Lois. Jimmy and Clark are back at the planet where Jimmy is showing Clark some pictures that he's taken, and he happens to show Clark a picture of a tanker, which, using his microscopic vision, Clark recognizes as a Kasnian tanker. And before Jimmy can really ask how Clark even saw that, Clark is gone, jumping to the jumping out of a window of the Daily Planet into the air as Superman. Meanwhile, the Kasnian tanker is already at sea and on its way home. Corbin gives the order to get rid of Lois, and one of the henchmen shoots at her, finding his shot blocked by Superman, who crashes in the tanker's roof. Superman shields Lois and frees her ropes with his heat vision, and then takes on the thugs as Corbin slips into the war suit. Uh, which means Superman is now mano a mano with Corbin in the lexoskeleton. He first whisks Lois off the tanker into safety at the docks, but the suit leaps to the land where Superman finds that its hide is electrified, which is a discovery that knocks him into the bay. Superman recovers and goes back at the super tank at a long, drawn-out battle, which is a lot like the fight scene from the end of RoboCop 2, where the large machine versus the smaller man. And Corbin actually begins gaining the upper hand, throwing Superman around like a ragdoll, blasting him with missiles, even bringing down an entire building on top of Superman. And just when Corbin believes he has put the Man of Steel down for the count, Superman rises from the rubble and begins dismantling the suit limb by limb until Corbin and the war suit plummet from the top of the building to the streets below. Once down, Superman rips Corbin out of the suit and asks if he'd like to go a couple of rounds without the suit. Lois, phoning in the story, tells Perry that stopping the presses would indeed be a very good idea. So the episode wraps up with Superman on the front page of the Daily Planet, which is sitting on the desk of Lex Luthor, who is a little ticked because he's being told by the regent's lawyers that he must refund the money that was given to him by the regent for the suit. And Lex is ticked because basically he has to eat a billion dollars. And the regent's rep suddenly feels a need to leave when a pair of red boots appear outside of Lex's window. And this is a great stalemate with Superman hovering outside the office, silently staring at Lex, who just tells Superman he can't prove anything, and Lex assures Superman that he owns Metropolis, and there is nothing Superman can do to touch him. And he offers Superman the chance to work for him, which Superman silently just disregards, which just irks Luthor. And just, Sue Luthor throws the model of the Lexo suit at Superman, which he crushes, and the only word Superman speaks to him is, I'll be watching you, Luthor. 
Meanwhile, in a quick epilogue, in deep space, a group of aliens discover Brainiac's satellite last seen back in Part 1, leaving Krypton. They bring it aboard where it proceeds to kill them and hijack the ship. And Brainiac systems go online as the ship takes off into space, and that wraps up the animated origin of the Man of Steel. Now, I think what stood out the most in this episode was the advanced violence of the show. A few episodes back, we talked about how the action for children's television managed to get the filmation Superman taken off the air for its mild violence. And of course, the Ruby Spears Superman had a rough time with standards and practices. But when Batman the Animated Series came around, we saw a show that aimed at a broader demographic to from children to young adults and really towed that line. And the show did include such no-nos as guns that shoot actual bullets and broken glass. Anybody that watched cartoons in the 80s may remember G.I. Joe where they shot nothing but lasers that didn't hit anything. And everybody happened to eject with a parachute whenever their planes went down. And But I think Superman the Animated Series benefited very heavily from that show paving the way. And the action was very well done. Uh, it was enhanced by the superb animation, which had some great blur effects for Superman's speed, and the sound as well, because there's some great crunching of metal or the whooshing of a cape as Superman flies off. And this episode also gave the voice cast their first time to really shine in their roles. Once again, Dana Delaney delivered a Lois who still had that sharp wit and fearless attitude, but wasn't above giving Clark a little credit when it was due, such as getting under Luthor's skin, and also has a normal past with romantic relationships with sometimes the wrong people. And as we're going to see in upcoming episodes, these three episodes really expertly laid the groundwork for, for what's to come, with the appearance of John Corbin and the fact that Kal-El's ship landed instead of crashing. And we even get the last minute setup of Brainiac. So we're ready to go on these adventures, and I am excited to go there with you. Now, as a whole unit, these three episodes hit on every major element of the origin, and they do it with aplomb. It's at once extremely familiar, but not repetitive to the versions of the story we have seen in the past. The animation style owes a lot to Batman the Animated Series, absolutely, but it strikes out in a bold direction. The colors pop off the screen, especially on DVD, but they don't really represent a pastel four-color scheme, more of a vibrant, lively palette. The characters move fluidly in their designs while they are rudimentary and using that very sharp, uh, what they call dark deco on Batman the Animated Series, they still look relatable, I guess, for lack of a better word. You can buy into it. And Superman's powers are canny and grounded. The voice cast is above the bar on all levels. From Clancy Brown's cool commanding Lex Luthor, of course, Tim Daly, Superman and Clark Kent, and Mike, Mike Farrell's level-headed, nurturing Pa Ken. Now, in this episode, the callback to Luthor's purple and black jumpsuit was nice and subtle, didn't overpower the scene. Overall, this felt like the Man of Steel miniseries that kicked off the burn, area, burn era, just condensed into under 90 minutes. And from here, we do begin that journey with the Man of Steel with a solid, clear status quo created. And I'll give the single episode 4 out of 5 star, 5 S-Shields. But the three as a premiere and a solid unit actually gets a full four and a half out of five. Hindered only by the glossing over of Clark's Smallville years when we get a full episode of Krypton. I just felt like they could have balanced that a little bit without really overplaying Smallville. I know we've had ten years of Smallville on TV. It could have just done a little bit more with that. Not much. I'm talking about maybe five minutes. So with that, let's play another promo and then we jump into this week's comic review. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program, 
featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton. The man of steel. Superman. The thrilling adventures of Superman. A journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com And this week, instead of multiple books, we're going to look at one. It's Action Comics Annual number 10 from 2007. And the reason I want to stick to this single issue is because it is filled with some branch-off topics that I really want to cover mainly to clarify what we've read so far and set up for some of the stories we will be heading into throughout 2011. Now, the issue was written in its entirety by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner and med- edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro with a series of artists we'll look at on a story-by-story basis. And altogether, the issue boasts five short stories in its 48 pages and includes special features such as a cutout view of Superman's Fortress of Solitude and a top 10 list of Superman's villains, which we'll cover a little bit. Now, the story, the first story that starts out the issue is The Many Deaths of Superman, which is illustrated by Art Adams and colored by Alex Sinclair and lettered by Travis Lanham. The story is uh, pretty straightforward. It's uh, Lex Luthor hacking his way through a jungle, listing many weaknesses of, of Superman and the many ways Luthor could kill him beyond the usual radioactivity of kryptonite, although that is included in as well as he does find kryptonite in a body of water towards the end of the story. Now, Adam's art is sharp as always, and the colors really draw you in. The main focal point that I want to look at is the actual weaknesses of Superman, uh, pretty much in the order that they appear in. And the first death is by Solar Fire. Uh, When Superman is exposed to a red sun, his powers disappear and he's left without his usual defenses. It is interesting that Luther, or more accurately, Johns, mentions this. The actual likelihood that Superman would end up being exposed to a red sun is pretty astronomical. and It would take a major celestial event to alter the Earth's sun, or Superman would have to go to some rare galaxy where a red sun exists. But this shows that Luthor is really reaching in some areas. He hasn't found a way to kill Superman yet that actually works and is desperate to the point where he may be considering something on a grand scale, you know, sort of that last resort. That's where he is mentally. Now, earmark that because I want to come back to that in just a moment. But for now, um, I want to move on to Superman's, um, well, next weakness, magic. And most references that I've looked at in Who's Who entries usually include the fact that Superman's vulnerability to magic is mysterious and unexplained. I think it makes perfect sense. Superman's powers are environmental, and by that I don't mean in the Captain Planet variety. His strength, his ability to overcome gravity, his vision powers, they're all based on the effects of a yellow sun, and they're proportionate to humans. It's a, the powers are a logical reaction of his body to Earth's environment. However, magic follows no logic and isn't a result of any physical law or scientific phenomenon. It's a completely mystical experience, not in the normal vein of metahuman activity. The fact is, since magic defies logic, there's no reason that Superman's powers should give him any invulnerability to it. It's completely paranormal, logic-defying force, and the Man of Steel, ironically, logically, is as susceptible to it as everyone else is uh, to magical-based attacks. Lothar next goes to Death by Brute Force, 
which is the one weakness that has actually resulted in a continuity death at the hands of Doomsday. Now, to call Superman invulnerable isn't actually accurate. True, the vast majority of circumstances that could kill a human, uh, they don't affect Superman. But he still has his limits. We've seen Superman push to the edge of his super strength and beyond. And over time, with strain, Superman will deplete his solar charged cells, and as a result, he will have a complete drain of his powers, and of course, potential demise. So that's a pretty straightforward weakness with pretty clear results. Now the story wraps up with that, with Luthor discovering that hunk of kryptonite, which the issue will come back to, so once again, keep that on the side shelf, and just right there in the background. The main thing about this story that I want to talk about, in strange irony, is that Luthor talks about how Superman's supporters believe his presence inspires them to be better people. And Luthor sees Superman's presence as allowing humanity to rest on their laurels and wait to be saved by this alien, who shouldn't be able to inspire anyone since nobody can actually achieve what Superman can achieve because they do not have the capabilities. So he sees his seemingly inevitable defeat and murder of Superman as an opening of the door for him to devote himself to genuinely inspiring humanity. And we don't really know what it is Luthor actually hopes to inspire in humanity, but I've always liked it when Luthor is written less like a straightforward mad scientist and more like a, a misguided superego of sorts. He believes himself to be humanity's savior. And it was something explored quite a bit in the From Crisis to Crisis era, a little bit in the background, not quite as upfront, and also very clearly explored in All-Star Superman as well as other places. He's, he's almost a reverse Magneto where Luther actually believes himself to be the Messiah of the people and capable of saving them rather than superior to them and wanting to destroy them, although the superiority complex is in there. He's basically an odd hybrid of Xavier and Magneto's ideals. But this shows Luthor's biggest weakness in itself, which is why I point this out. Luthor's ego has been his downfall for decades. And from his first appearance, believing himself to be able to uh, beat Superman through brain versus brawn, and it'll be his downfall to, to come. Luthor may be one of the smartest, most driven men on the planet, right on par with Batman, but he can't see his own flaws. He's smarter than the world gives him credit for sometimes, but he's not as smart as he believes himself to be. If he could see past his ego, he would know that Superman is in no way standing between him and genuinely inspiring the world or helping its people. It's Luthor's own pride that's the major block between his goals and himself. So the story really reveals Luthor's weakness in the process of this, which along with the Art Adams art, earns it a 4 out of 5 S-Shields. So let's move on to the next story, entitled Who is Clark Kent's Older Brother? Where Jeff Johns and Richard Donner are joined by Eric Wright on art, Lee Loughridge on colors, and Travis Lanham again on letters. Now the story covers a major character we really need to take a look at. Monel, who we saw in the Phantom Zone in Action Comics 846 last week. And this particular story begins with Lana Lang and her family crashing into a tree, avoiding Pete Ross's dog back in the Superboy Smallville era. Now, the tree happens to be near Clark's top secret trap door, which he used to make quick escapes from the Kent farm as Superboy as to not be seen. And Clark is happy to be close enough to Lana to smell her perfume, which he comments on, but he feels like last week's better and there's a tinge of pain to his face. Flashing back, Clark is making an excuse to get out of a baseball game with Pete, knowing his powers, give him that unfair advantage. And as he's walking home a little frustrated, a little lonely, a little alienated, he sees a spaceship crash into a field nearby and investigates. 
And when he gets to the ship, a boy who is slightly older than Clark in a red suit and blue cape addresses Clark as the son of Jor-El in Kryptonian. The problem is the boy has no idea who he or Jor-El are. And Clark shows the boy through his tunnel where the mystery boy recognizes the familiar S-shield as the symbol for the House of El on a flag. And he conjectures that wherever this flag is from, it must be where he came from too, which of course means he's probably Kryptonian and perhaps of the House of El. So Clark actually believes that the boy may be his older brother. Pop Kent has some doubts, but in the meantime, you know, the, he needs a name. The boy needs a name. So he takes Clark's last name of L, since the two of them are kind of on the same page that, you know, maybe he is a, f- a family member. And for his first name, looking at a calendar, he sees the abbreviated version of Monday, M-O-N. So with, M, with that first name and last name, he becomes Monel. Now, Clark and Monel go on several little adventures seen in small vignettes, um, one of the highlights of which is them playing a great play- game of baseball with Clark batting with a tree and Monel pitching with a boulder. And Clark just feels right. It's great for him because he doesn't have to feel alone. He's not an outcast. He has somebody who understands. And But the, the, the doubts still persist, so Clark finally decides to subject Monel to the ultimate test by exposing him to kryptonite. So the two would know if Monel was actually Kryptonian if he felt weak, which Monel does double over in pain, but it just happens before Clark can even open the lead box holding a chunk of Kryptonite. And Monel at this point immediately remembers his name is Largand and that he's a citizen of the planet Daxum. And studying the destruction of Krypton and the lone rocket that left at its demise, he was able to track it to Earth where a sunspot storm brought his ship down and temporarily removed his memory. Monel also explains that it's the lead that is fatal to him, and he's already absorbed a lethal dose. And at this point, there's nothing to be done. Well, almost. Reluctantly, Clark places Monel into the Phantom Zone where time will stand still, knowing he doesn't know how to get him out, doesn't know how to cure him, but he hopes that, you know, putting him in there, he'll be able to research and find a cure and get Monel out. And that's where the story ends with Clark going back to his lonely existence as the young Superboy. Now, the funny thing about this story is that it's been told before. In Superman number 80, a story entitled Superman's Older Brother appeared, featuring a character named Halk Carr, and the story shares a huge amount of similarities with this version, except that it's set in the Superman era, rather than the Superboy, which would be fixed in Superboy number 89, when Monel himself would make his first appearance. And the story was essentially repeated, very much the exact story we saw here, right down to Monel naming himself after the Monday on the calendar. Now, Monel's powers are pretty much identical to Superman's, save his weakness to lead and not kryptonite. And Monel would eventually be released from the Phantom Zone in the 30th century in the pre crisis continuity where he would join the Legion of Superheroes. The only amendment to Monel's origins in the post crisis continuity was the fact that his meeting with Superboy took place in a pocket universe. And when the Legion experienced a major continuity shakeup, which happens every few years with Legion, Monel literally replaced Superboy as a Legion's inspiration and was redubbed Valor and was a hero in our contemporary times because, of course, Superman didn't have an experience as Superboy. And Valor would eventually succumb to the lead poisoning again in this timeline, once again end up in the future where he took on the Monel name again with an altered spelling. And the version of the story we looked at today introduces Monel into the post crisis, post infinite crisis continuity, our new Earth continuity that we've been exploring. And coming up, he's going to become a very, very important character across the next few months months of our books. Um, First immediately and then down the road, he's going to become even more important. 
So I wanted to start uh, kind of getting to know him, give you that first appearance, kind of give you a little bit of background. Now, as far as the version of the story, it, it kind of breaks even here. Although it isn't by any means an original story, it does feel like a nice callback as well as a respectable addition to the New Earth canon. Now, Eric Wright brings a style that's very much, it looks just like Mike Alred of Madman, which actually gives the piece a really good retro feel as well as a vein of fun and sadness. It definitely gets your attention. It manages to sell Clark's state of mind seamlessly on his facial expressions. Now, this in and Basically, all, overall, this one gets three S-Shields out of five. As I said, it just breaks even. The next story is Mystery Under the Blue Sun, which is the single shortest story in this issue at two pages, but it's drawn by, colored, and lettered by the legendary Joe Kubert. And it's a pretty simple story featuring the Cuba ship from Thanagar, which is Hawkman's homeworld, and they're responding to another distress symbol f- signal from one of their ships in Space Sector 1482. And when they get there, they find multiple these multiple police vessels just destroyed, just demolished, with a new planet in the system, which is a square version of our own planet Earth. And before the Thanagarians can even react, their ship is torn apart by a trio of bizarros. And that's how the story ends. Sort of. Um, what this does, it's a prelude to what will be Jeff Johns and Richard Donner's next storyline um, shortly after Last Sun. Now, this story is a simple just that simple prelude it worked really well to tease that and Kubert's art's always welcome, even when it's not at the top of his form, as is the case here. And that's not to say the art is horrid by any means, because Joe Kubert can do some great art with one hand tied behind his back and an eye patch on. But here it looks a little rough, um, kind of more like he was up against the deadline, needed to get this in before it went to press and he just wasn't able to do some finishing touches and smooth out some wrinkles. Now, immediately following this is a detailed view at Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And this shows us how much the fortress has been amalgamated in this era with some of the past incarnations. I'm not going to go way in depth with this, but the piece was drawn by Phil Jimenez and Andy Lanning, colored by Jeremy Cox and lettered by Travis Lanham. And we have the crystalline structure of the Donner movies with its sunstone projector and crystalline technology. But there are some callbacks to the Silver Age such as the trophy and statue room in the interplanetary habitat. And one note, in the lower right-hand corner from other eras stands the Burn Era war suit, slightly tweaked, and it stands next to the Supermobile. Look close, that's it. And that means there's a little bit of Bronze Age, a little bit of Burn Era. And like as I, we're going to be looking a little bit closer at the Fortress of Solitude and yet another upcoming episode. So inevitably, we will revisit this particular spot in more detail down the road. And as far as the Blue Sun storyline by Joe Kubert, I'm going to give that two out of five shields, just because, as I said, the art's a little rough. Could have had a little bit more finesse to it. Now, following the diagram is the Criminals of Krypton story, which is drawn by Rags Morales and Mark Farmer, with colors by Edgar Delgado, and once again, lettered by Travis Lanham. And this, this particular story expands on the imprisonment scenario we saw last week in Action Comics 846. And this is actually a nice bit of background for the Last Sun storyline. Uh, the story begins with the three criminals facing the council and Jor-El standing in the hula hoop holding cell. And as they're being, you know, torn apart verbally, Jor-El is prepared to place the judgment on them. But they actually manage to break free and begin just tearing up the council, which leads us oddly into a flashback, which shouldn't work, but does. And in the flashback, Jor-El is speaking to his mentor, Nan, 
Now, this is before the scar we see across the forehead, and you heard right. This starling, mindless brute Zod taught Jor-El. In fact, the two of them discovered Krypton's fate together, which did, it really drew the, the ire of the Council. And the Council's a little bit more aggressive here because it actually believes it, what they're doing to be heresy. So the Council sends General Zod and Ursa to arrest the scientists, and when they're taken in, they're told to cease and desist what they're doing by the right immediately, and don't bring this out to the public. Which Jor-El kind of you know is obedient to. He continues his research quietly and out of the way, but Nan actually takes to the streets to tell the populace. And oddly enough, General Zod actually believes in what uh, Nan is saying, and wants to save Krypton. And he gives Nan a lot of leeway, actually, you know, kind of not arresting him when he should, according to the council. Unfortunately, the council steps in and drags Nan out of his bed in the middle of the night, and they give him a nice fancy lobotomy, which turns him into the mindless animal we know. And he's not found for weeks until he's found at the edge of the jungle eating a lizard. So after the assault on Nan, Zod and Ursa really see the need to stop the council and their political machinations. So they plan an uprising against the council and invite Jor-El to join, but Jor-El, does, of course, declines. And by the, the trio actually manages to attack the council, and before they're taken down, they actually manage to kill five members of the council, which is something Krypton hasn't seen for some time. Now, with that flashback wrapped up, we return to the trial where the trio are once again subdued and placed back in the hula hoop cell, and Jor-El carries out the sentence of life in the Phantom Zone, and the story ends there. And of course, we know where it picks back up. And this is sort of a familiar scenario, expanding heavily on the version we saw in, not just in Action Comics 846, but in Superman the movie and Superman 2. And while General Zod actually had his first comic appearance in Adventure Comics 283 back in 1961, Ursa and Nan actually had their first comic appearance in Action Comics 845, which I failed to point out. I apologize for that. And both of them first appeared, actually, their first actual appearance in any medium was in Superman the movie. They were created somewhat for that movie, but they had original templates in the characters of Feora for Ursa and Quexel for Nan. And Ursa and Feora are fairly clean analogs, while Nan differs greatly from his original Silver Age counterpart. Of course, in Superman the movie, we didn't have this expansive look at Nan. He was just a guttural, ape-like, creep, uh, well, person. In mentally. And in this story, I mean, Nan and Zod take the front seat uh, with some of Ursa's backstory to be featured down the road in the new Krypton. So we'll talk about that then. But it's actually a very interesting look at Nan. And in that, with what happens to Nan, we kind of begin to understand Zod's motivations. And I dare say, after reading this story, you almost sympathize with Zod. I mean, the council misled him and his troops into why they were arresting Jor-El and Nan and uh, prevented the, the protection of Krypton the, just by, for political reasons. And, and as well, as they lied directly to the public about Krypton's impending destruction. And Nan was very much a, a counterpart to Jor-El in, in his original form. I mean, he went to appealing to the council, and he ended up taking, losing his intellect because of it. And so Zod's insurgency is left a little less black and white. As far as evil, good and evil, is Zod really the bad guy? I'm not sure at the end of this, because in this telling of the story, we really get a clear idea of what Zod was actually doing for the first time. And the great thing about this telling is it actually could have fit roughly into the movie chronology as well. Not perfectly, 
but it would definitely explain Zod's desire to rule by the fist in a public show of force and firm justice rather than political meandering and underhanded tactics like we saw with, with Non. My one big complaint is that this story wasn't played out in the monthly book into action comics in the context of Last Sun. It's, it's, a, it's an extra because this would have actually given some character definition, but it still works in this format um, and roughly, you know, vaguely referred to. This is almost like a deleted scene. Not that that's a bad thing because Morales and Farmer make a, a pretty stable art team. They lay out the story well and they add some really sharp moments of character emotions on the page. So overall, I'm going to give this three out of five S shields because it should have been in the main book. And before we make our last stop in this comic, there's actually a quick rundown of Superman's top 10 villains. And this section was actually drawn by Tony Daniel, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Phil Bossman. And I'm not going to get into a lot of the details here um, other than to list the top 10. And starting at number one was Lex Luthor, of course. Number two would be Brainiac, which I agree with. Zod, Ursa, and Non are three, four, and five, respectively. Pretty, pretty clear. Number six is Bizarro. Parasite's at the number seven spot. Mr. Mix's Pitalik is at number eight. Metallo is at number nine. And the Toy Man is at number 10. I think the Toy Man doesn't feel quite right there, but honestly, off the top of my head, I can't think of who I would put in number 10. And I can tell you without spoiling anything that almost all of these characters will be featured prominently in some upcoming storylines that we're going to be exploring right here. And the story actually wraps up with an interesting uh, book, you know, bookend with a story entitled The Deadliest Forms of Kryptonite, which is drawn by Gary Frank and Jonathan Sabal, colored by Brad Anderson and lettered by Phil Balsman. Now, this final story brings us almost full circle back to the beginning of this annual, back to the, the, dead, the many deaths of Superman, which I said, put it in the background. Now, let's bring it forward, because at this point, Luther's tinkering with in, around in his lab with that kryptonite we saw him find earlier. Now, he admits he's pretty much become bored with kryptonite. He's done, he had thought he had done everything he could with it, but then he found out it comes in colors. And we see gold, red, and blue kryptonite on display in his lab. And this is some nice, a nice place to do some preliminary work on kryptonite. Although, to be honest, next week we're going to come back and really look more in-depth at kryptonite. But this will be a nice warm-up. So we may kind of go back over this a little bit next week, but with more depth. And, of course, we know that the green kryptonite weakens and kills Superman. It's the generic kryptonite. Now, in the post um, from Crisis to Crisis era, it was really not necessarily the only kryptonite, but there were a few, only a few one-offs where any colors came in, and they were, uh, well, primarily just one-offs, odd situations. But in the new Earth era, the, the, many form, the many colors of kryptonite come back. And once again, we see uh, some callbacks to the Silver and Bronze Age where red kryptonite once again causes an unpredictable change in Superman, such as activating his heat vision without his control. Now, so far, we haven't seen an ant head Superman in the, in the uh, New Earth era, but I'm still holding out hope. And also, like the Silver Age, gold kryptonite robs Superman of his powers permanently, while blue kryptonite weakens and kills Bizarro. Now, the crux of this story comes when Luthor takes all four of these colors and places them into a matrix in the chest cavity of Metallo, essentially upgrading him. And the issue closes with Luthor announcing, and thus begins my Superman Revenge Squad. Now the story itself gets a, it's very simple, but it gets a big boost, not just because it tied the entire annual together, point A and point B, with that nice bookend, but it also sets up a large chunk of what is to come. 
Now, the other boost comes because Gary Frank draws some great art, as we're going to see coming up. So simply put, without much, a lot of comment, it's pretty straightforward, pretty easy, great-looking story. It gets three out of five S-Shields. And that actually wraps us up this week. Um, well, there is one more thing. Apparently, Steve Rogers got a voicemail that was meant for me. And uh, he forwarded it to me graciously. So I would like to kind of play that for you just for your own enjoyment. Greetings, J. David Weeder. This is Darkseid, and I must tell you, I've discovered a new television program to add to my devotion list. That is Homicide, Life on the Street. Yes, Michael Ironside did me great justice on Superman the Animated Series, but he doesn't hold a candle to the acting talents of one Andre Brower, who, while some did not like his portrayal in the last Superman Batman flick, but as Frank Pemberton is one great cop. You must see this show, J. David Weeder. Drama, tension and the battle between good and evil for the soul of Baltimore, Maryland. It is awesome. Plus, Miss Melissa Leo is in it, and J. David Weeder must recommend her latest flick, Red State. She puts granny goodness to shame in that flick, and I think I'll take Michael Parr's character over to Saad any day. If Kevin Smith wants to make a trade with, the, with DC Comics, granny and Saad for those new characters, I'm all for it. That is all. Good day. Now back to my homicide life on the street marathon. Love, dark side. Oh, one more thing. Winning. And uh, I, I don't know what to say. I, I vaguely remember Homicide Life on the Street. I uh, I don't have a nice map, but it's always good to hear from Darkside, who apparently is uh, part of, well, part of Charlie Sheen's uh, porn family. I didn't never thought I'd be able to say that on a Superman podcast, so forgive me. But he has been uh, pretty much converted to, to Charlie Sheen. And as far as I know, he gave up Charlie Sheen for Lent this past week. So we may see him come back very soon on an episode. But for now, I'm pretty much pretty much ready to sign off. I do want to apologize for last week's episode, episode 16. I'm just going to be honest. Not the episode I really want to put out. I apologize. The quality was fairly low. The sound quality was a little off when I re-listened to it. Plus, the content wasn't as clear as it could have been. So I do apologize for that. Um, I have no real excuses. I, I rushed through it. Not the episode I want to put out. I like to put out a quality show. And so skipping last week, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. And if you kind of leave a review at iTunes for me, as it helps the show get noticed, I would highly appreciate that. And also you can drop the show a line via email at the address mail at supermanforever.com or on Twitter where you can find me under the name Superman Forever. That is Superman the number four ever. And you can also find this and many other great Superman podcasts at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at the fortressofbailey2.com backslash Superman Podcast Network. And you can like the show on Facebook. Just simply search for supermanforever.com and, of course, click the like button. And, of course, visit supermanforever.com and vote for your choices for the show's official Superman right on the sidebar. And so that will, next week, as I said, will bring us down to the final two. Voting will remain open until Friday. And, uh... Well, that, with that, I thank you very much for listening, and until next week, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademark of DC Comics, Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.